It's a real pleasure to welcome Maryam Memar Sadari, who's the co-director and the co-founder of Tavana Learning Institute for Iranian Civil Society. They're widening their nets to other Middle Eastern countries and neighboring countries, so maybe we will learn that it's more than for Iranian civil society. I hope you've had a chance to look at their websites because it's very impressive, whether you speak Persian or not. You'll get a glimpse into the fact that they have a very wide range and a dynamic range of programs that they teach online. The courses are not for credit, but they are at undergraduate and postgraduate and specialist levels. Most of them are in Persian, but there are also translated materials available in English. They have a whole section dedicated to computer security, which you know is a, the portal and the necessity to access all of their other um, materials. They have seminars, they have case studies, they have panels, they have specialist courses, all in areas that are highly relevant to current day Iranian civil society. So from health and hum human rights to various areas of activism to democracy building, etc., etc., she, she will no doubt tell us more. Um, Mariam started this very impressive venture around eight years ago, and their work has been rightly recognized not only by the Iranian population, as you might have seen in the introduction, more than 15 million people are regularly accessing their site, but also it's been covered in top journals Many think tanks uh, give a platform to hear about the Tavana experience. And it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Oxford and hear more about this. Thank you, Nazila John. Thank you for having me. And thank you to uh, Ms. Sarayat Ramein very much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today. I will tell you uh, more about Tavanov and, uh, and also discuss what's happening in Iran today. And of course, I would love to hear from you, your ideas, your thoughts, opinions, questions, anything. And if I can be helpful on uh, better understanding uh, any of the, the dynamics, especially about civil society. So what's been happening the last couple of months, especially, as you know, are widespread protests in over 80 cities throughout the country. This by itself is just such a significant fact. I mean, a country having protests in over 80 cities at once. Much of the original spark from the working class, people striking and people uprising against the illegitimate or corrupted uh, credit institutions. People had put their savings into these credit institutions that were promising 20, 30 percent interest a year, and those basically became a Ponzi scheme. They didn't have the money to pay back even the the original um, savings that people had put in. So those protesters were, were the original spark, but really in terms of uh, late December. But really over the last year, we've had all kinds of smaller working class revolts throughout the country, strikes by people working in factories, in the transport sector, in bakeries, sugar refineries, again, throughout the country. What happened in the last couple of months that made things so much more of an explosion is that all of those people pressing for fairness in terms of work and wages and living conditions and solutions to the, to the deep, deep corruption that they found in their own lives with these credit institutions, but was really just a reflection of the much larger corruption of the Iranian regime writ large, 
What happened with all of that is that it combined with also women protesting for their most basic human rights, for the right not to wear a hijab. Hijab has been forced on Iranian women since the revolution, and a, a very courageous woman named Vida Movahed, Movahedi, one day, actually one day before the big labor protests erupted, the big working class protests erupted, she got on top of a, a small kind of like a box, a telephone kind of box, and she, she t had taken off her hijab with her hair showing and put her, her um, hijab on a stick and was, was waving the stick on, on Engalab Avenue on uh, Revolution Street. It was huge, it was very huge, because, you know, what may seem like really not much of anything to outside observers, of course all of you in this room know, uh, is a huge act of, 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 of courage because um, it's the one thing that Iranian women, though they, they never accepted about this uh, regime, uh, complied, complied with forced hijab out of fear. So she broke that wall of fear, and as she was arrested and, to, and, and imprisoned, and we didn't know anything about where she was or what she was up, you know, her health and whereabouts. But then, I think maybe one month later, a second woman did the same thing, and then a third and a fourth, and then it was just really all throughout the country, all different kinds of cities, people walking around or get people getting on top of like a stand in the middle of a city, people in the middle of like freeways, people in front of major public squares, men joining in, women who themselves were veiled but were holding the white uh, piece of cloth on a stick to show that they're against forced hijab compulsory hijab. Um, so all this is happening. The difference between this uprising, this really nationwide uprising against a totalitarian regime, and the uprising in 2009, the Green Movement following the, the election in 2009, are pretty important. The differences are pretty important. One, one difference that is not political is the proliferation of technology. So in 2009, roughly one to two million people had a smartphone. So when the Green Movement was going on, and you may remember Nedaga Sultan was shot to death, those roughly one million people managed to get the YouTube video out, and the world at large was very much aware of what was going on. This time, somewhere between 40 to 50 million Iranians have a smartphone. So you can, uh, you can appreciate how much more connected how much more in discussion, how much more easily they can talk to each other about what's happening, what the next, what the next gathering is going to be about, but also how much they can get out to the outside world, what, what, what they're experiencing, what they're organizing. The women's resistance is very new in that someone has taken off hijab. Of course, Nazila knows this history very well. In a way, it's, it's, it, it's, it's old because the Baha'i faith in its, in its origins had a woman who took off her hijab and she did so <laughs> many, many years ago, over 150 years ago. It was the spark to a lot of liberal discourse at that time. So in many ways, and of course before the revolution in Iran, so many women did not wear hijab. When, it was, when, it was, when there was freedom, so many women, um, of course, chose not to, even f women from uh, religious families. So in a way, there's nothing new about it. But in this context of such a repressive regime, it feels very significant, it feels very bold, and it is, is very symbolic for the aspiration and the demand for 
uh, civil and political liberties as a whole, the whole spectrum. It's also not new, however, within the context of this regime. So since the, the revolution and the imposition of, of forced hijab, there have been w attempts to try and stop the injustice of it. So at the very beginning of the revolution, women came out in basically a counter-revolt, a counter-revolution to the revolution, really resisting the idea that women should wear hijab. They were not small in number, and pictures from those marches are, are really profound in sort of the public imagination. But they were uh, forcibly quelled, and basically you know, hijab was, was imposed. The Iran-Iraq war was going on, it was a very difficult time, but even then, and, and certainly after the Iran-Iraq war and the Reconstruction era, the Rafsanjani period, women began to resist in a, in a way that was coded. So coded resistance to regime ideology, a discrimination, and basically this segregation. So, so not just the, the laws, but the but the, 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 the regulation of public spaces, the separating of men and women, and um, the, the confinement of women. So with hijab also came laws that restricted the movement, the free movement and travel and work of women. So even from, uh, we're talking about you know decades ago really, women started to wear lipstick, stockings were sexy, sometimes showing from beneath the mantos, and or the, you know, this, the, the, the hijab going back, the Rusari going back, and all of that was really a prelude to, you know, really, really not happy with this, but there's the lack of choice here. So that's a little bit of background for you. Um, so why is where we are now different from previous attempts to reform, improve, uh, progress within the confines of um, the Islamic Republic? What's very different is essentially that these protests are not trying to reform within the confines of the Islamic Republic. In the Green Movement and before that during the Khatami era when the, the students were active and they were again violently crushed and Khatami who was supposed to be a reformist and really I guess within that context he, he was trying to be a reformist basically didn't come to the assistance of the students. This is in the late 90s. That attempt and then the Green Movement attempt were very much within the, within the, the circle of what, what counts as the political in Iran, what counts as governmental in Iran. So people were behind a government candidate, um, Khatami in the late 90s and then Musavi and Karubi in 2009. What's very different now is that uh, the slogans uh, the kinds of people on the street, although they are supposed to be, they are the mustazafin, the downtrodden, the people who are supposed to be the base of this revolution and this regime, they are the ones that are revolting against it. This is very significant for a government like this because a government like this professes to have its legitimacy, professes to have its sovereignty, its, its reason for being in supporting and helping those people that were downtrodden and um, not being given the dignity that they deserved under the previous regime, under a cap, under under a under a West toxified capitalist, pro-Western, very modern uh, regime. But what we find is that actually, it's under this regime that the difference between the rich and the poor has become 
grossly exaggerated, that the amount of economic corruption is, by, for example, Transparency International's uh, estimation, among the worst countries in the world. But this is really no surprise because of the type of government. You have transparency and accountability and economic justice in countries where the government is democratic. Where the government is not democratic, justice is not possible. And so, you know, we've never had a case in the history of the world where there is a form of government that is not democratic, that is communist or theocratic or something else, and the people end up having their rights secured and people, and people have a sense of accountability from their political leaders. In this resistance of the women right now, you see all of those aspirations for democratic life, accountability, fairness, choices, individuality, individual rights, privacy, the sacredness of the private realm, social liberties, modernity, being connected to the world, being able to live as others live and to choose how one lives. One thing that's important, I think, that you probably are sensitive to also, even though we don't live in Iran, is that is this idea of Iran becoming another Syria. This is an idea or this is a fear that the Iranian regime has been stoking in, a, in subtle ways for the last few years. The message is don't demand too much because what will end up happening is that our country will end up as Syria has ended up. Total annihilation, total destruction. And implicit in that warning is a threat to the people that if you rise up, we will do to you what we did to the Syrian people. It's very important for the outside world to recognize that this is a threat from the Iranian regime. It's not a a sympathetic warning of, oh, let's be careful here, we're all Iranians, let's not lose our peace and tranquility. It's, we're in power, and if you try to change that, we will come after you, and we have no qualms about destroying this country because we've already destroyed another country. So what what can prevent another Syria is not for people to say, well, those that are protesting in Iran, these women, these workers, the dervishes, others who are protesting and trying for religious freedoms. We just had recently some of the leaders of the Baha'i faith, the Yaran, be released. And very touching images and videos of, of their release and their, their re- reunification after 10 years of imprisonment. And you can see how dignified their persona, their ideas, their aspirations, their ideals are compared to what is prevailing, compared to what is ruling in Iran. And people, people are seeing this, and all of these different issues are melding online. So at one moment, you're, you're, you're seeing your Telegram feed or your Facebook feed or Twitter feed, and you see that you see the image of the of the Yaran, the Baha'i. You see the image of the women protesting for their most basic rights to dress as they choose. You see students who are uh, who are pressing to have their colleagues to have their to have their classmates released from from prison. You see these these people who are protesting outside of factories who refuse to work despite being poor and despite despite not being paid their basic basic very low wages poverty-level wages for the last 10 months. You see teachers who are protesting because they basically can't make a living being, being a teacher. So you see all this online all enmeshed together. And this is, this is very much a function of social media, too, but it's also a function of, of, of the reality of life. All these people 
have demands that are not being met. So how do we prevent another Syria is that we have to listen to what their demands are, to take them seriously, not say, no, if you do it now, if you do it this way, if you do it, you know, we're going to end up being a country at war. It's to, to increase the pressure, to increase the pressure on the regime from within by providing solidarity to those people and doing all we can from the outside to raise their voices so that the regime does not feel that if it cracks down, if it's violent against them, it can get away with it. Because what's going to make Iran another Syria is the Iranian regime, not those people that are pressing for their rights. So let me talk a little bit about Tavana, and then of course I can answer questions about Tavana. You mentioned that about other countries. We are working for other countries, particularly teachers in other countries in the Middle East. We're providing them with resources through a sister project that we've created called the Tolerance Project, which is in Persian language, Arabic language, and English. So the English part really makes it so that people, say, in China or Russia can also use the resources to promote religious freedom, to promote the countering of hatred, sectarianism, also really LGBT rights, any kind of identity-based hatreds. So we call that the Tolerance Project. Uh, we are trying to do more in other countries, but that's where we are right now. Um, so uh, Nazilajan mentioned the e-courses that we have, which, by the way, everything is open access. Anyone can access our resources for free anytime without a login. And we also, though, I would say more significantly now, we instigate or stimulate civic discourse online. And the, the, when I say we reach millions of people every day, it's, it's through Telegram and Instagram and, 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 and all of that. And then we air our material, our educational materials on satellite television. So sometimes people don't know about Tavano until they watch a program on TV and then they become kind of participating. Tavana Tech is, so it's Tavana and Tavana Tech. Tavana Tech, we provide the circumvention tools so people can access a free internet which, as you know, in places like Iran and China is significant because of the, the censorship. During protest periods, it's, it's much more important. So to give you a sense of how important it is to get the circumvention tools, one post during the protest period that we had on our Telegram channel, just the one post, had over 3 million viewers. It was huge when people wanted to make sure that they could access the news. We have been funded by the U.S. government, um, the Dutch government, um, and Google provides us with a lot of uh, in-kind funding, over half a million dollars a year in in-kind support. 